It's the ordinary things that we do on a daily basis that have an extraordinary effect on our health. Welcome to the New Shoe Podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Cornell. I invite you with love into this space to learn and grow with me. And for a brief moment of the day, come home to yourself. If you are a wellness junkie, a health junkie, someone truly committed to living the healthiest and most fulfilled life possible, this episode with Dr. Frank Lipman is for you. Dr. Lipman is a functional medicine doctor and New York Times bestselling author of five books, most recently on the topic of sleep. He will walk us through how to create a plan for true well-being that isn't pricey, inaccessible, or impossibly strict or regimented. He will show us that we can learn so much from both Western medicine and Eastern medicine, and that shifting our focus to long-term healthy habits, listening to the wisdom held in our bodies, can help us increase our chance of avoiding illness in the first place and create greater resilience and overall health generally, and also specifically relating to COVID. Mostly though, I loved this conversation because Frank is a beautiful soul. In the commoditized world of health and wellness, it is a breath of fresh air to speak to someone so deeply committed to helping people and keeping it real and simple. The truth is, many of the most important things you can do to help your health and well-being are free. And this conversation with Frank will help you lean into those things. Thank you for tuning in. So Dr. Lipman, tell us about your path as a doctor and what led you to this approach. I grew up in South Africa during apartheid. That was in the 50s and 60s, 70s, and I went to medical school there. So apartheid, which sort of reminds me that I'm living through something very similar now in America. But during apartheid, everything was separate. Blacks and whites had to live in separate areas, they had to go to separate schools, separate hospitals. And I went to medical school in South Africa. My training was mainly in black hospitals because I preferred to work there. I'm not exactly sure why, but I learned more. It was much more interesting for me. And I actually got exposed to traditional healers, sangomas, early on in my career. Even in the hospitals, when we couldn't help a patient, the family used to call in the sangoma, the traditional healer. I noticed early on that there was obviously something apart from what I got trained in. And then when I finished my training in 1979, 1980, I went to work in the bush for 18 months. And once again, I had the experience of working with Sangomas and seeing how they worked. And once again, I saw when we couldn't help patients, they were helping. Already had an open mind or realized there was something else. And then my wife and I didn't want to live in South Africa and with apartheid, so we ran away to America, and here we are. And I had to do three years in internal medicine to get a license in New York. I got a job in New York in the South Bronx, which is a burnt-out area, and after about two weeks of doing my residency, I realized that medicine was very different. In South Africa, we didn't have the money to do all tests. We had to take a really good history. We had to examine a patient. You had to get to know someone and then you would decide on a treatment. In America, there was no time to talk to people. You just did all the blood tests, you did an X-ray, you did an EKG, and then you had to go study up for the next morning where you presented to the professor, and there was no interaction with patients. That wasn't of interest to me. So 
I said to my wife, this is not what I want to do. And there happened to be an acupuncture clinic uh, in, at Lincoln Hospital doing acupuncture detox for heroin and crack addicts, which was an epidemic in the 80s. This was 1984 in the South Bronx of New York. And I decided to go check it out. And I walked into the clinic and I walked into a room with about 50 people and saw people quietly with needles in their ears. And that was actually very helpful for people sitting calmly. And these were the same type of people in the wards that were pulling out their IVs and shouting and screaming. So that was sort of my first introduction in America of another way of treating people. And then it's a whole long story short, made short by realizing in the hospital we are treating acutely ill patients, crisis care. It was wonderful for acute pneumonia and heart attacks and people who are acutely ill. And at the acupuncture clinic, we were seeing people who couldn't poop and had headaches and they were tired. And I saw then in the mid-80s that the future of medicine would be some combination of the two because the different types of medicine were treating different types of problems. So it just made perfect sense that the best medicine would be some combination of the two. And then got into nutrition and then acupuncture and meditation and yoga. And that's been my journey to try and combine the two. I love the phrase you use, crisis management. Sometimes people really think of medicine only in terms of crisis management, but what you practice is so much more. People unfortunately think doctors can take care of most of their problems. Mm -hmm. The reality is what we get trained in the hospitals and in Western medicine is what I say is crisis care. If you're acutely ill, if you're having a heart attack, an asthmatic attack, uh, pneumonia, that's when Western medicine is appropriate. But for most problems people have today, Western medicine isn't really appropriate because they have a pill. So you have a symptom, you take a pill to suppress the symptom. Only tools are medications and surgeries. So you either cut the part out or you just suppress the symptoms. So it's not a particularly sophisticated system for chronic conditions, for acute conditions, and maybe for cancer at this stage. There are certainly, I'm not saying Western medicine is bad. I'm saying it's a set number of conditions that it's helpful for. So let's talk about the not acute and the not crisis, because you wrote a book, How to Be Well, Six Keys to a Happy, Healthy Life. Eat, sleep, move, protect, unwind, and connect. And when I look at those words, what I'm struck with is how accessible they are, how available they are. Maybe on the eat, there are food deserts and there are issues with the supply chain. And that's a whole other topic that's actually important and interesting. But when I look at the other ones, those are really accessible to everyone and things that people can do for themselves to optimize their health. And so let's talk about them. Let's talk about food. What is your bottom line approach to food and nutrition? Just before we start, the point that I make in the book, which is just to confirm what you're saying, is it's the ordinary things that we do on a daily basis that have an extraordinary effect on our health. Mm -hmm. And we forget that. We just think it's only medicine that's going to help us. And that's why I wrote the book, 100 Tips on These Simple Things That One Can Do. So when it comes to food, my basic philosophy is eat as close to nature as possible. Food that gets altered is a problem. Food that gets injected with hormones or chemicals is a problem. And I don't think there's one right diet for 
everyone. Some people do well on a vegetarian diet. Some people do well on a paleo diet. So there's no one right diet. You've got to work out what works for you. But there's a wonderful American philosopher and farmer, Wendell Berry, who most Americans have not heard of, who says, we are fed by the food industry that pays no attention to our health and treated by the health industry that pays no attention to our food. So the problem with food today is it's become complicated because the food industry puts out food that is generally unhealthy. So our default choices are unhealthy. What we call organic fruits and vegetables should just be normal because putting pesticides and chemicals on fruits and vegetables should not be the norm. Even the way I grew up in South Africa, you would eat the local fruits and vegetables. The meats hadn't been injected with all hormones. You were eating food that wasn't altered, so it was easier. Today, philosophically, you can say eat as close to nature as possible, but it is a little bit more difficult just because how do you get these foods? The healthier foods, unfortunately, tend to be more expensive. Grass-fed meat, for instance, is more expensive than injected meat because we have a food system, an agricultural system that's rotten because it's not serving the public. The government subsidizes all the wrong crops. The government subsidizes these concentrated animal farming operations, factory farms. So the food system needs to change because it is harder to eat healthily. And I think that's criminal. Yeah, I definitely think that this one is the most challenging one. You can say get enough sleep and everybody can attempt to get enough sleep. But for some people, getting access to food close to nature, fresh fruits and vegetables is not a possibility. It puts the poor people in this position where they have to buy the crap that big food makes because it's cheap. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about the other ones that really are quite accessible. Let's talk about sleep and unwind together because I'd like you to explain the difference between sleep and unwind. It's good that you combine them in a way because probably the commonest problems people have with sleep is because they can't unwind. Just once again, the way we set up our lives. We work so hard and we expect to just stop and go to sleep and it doesn't work like that. You've got to get yourself ready for sleep. We're sitting all day under artificial lights and we're not getting enough natural light. That's going to affect your sleep. We have artificial light late on into the night and that tricks your body because your body expects to have dark at night and then your melatonin, which is your sleep hormone, doesn't get produced because we have all these artificial lights so the way we live our lives, apart from all the stress, is also not helping the way we sleep. But stress probably is the most important factor when it comes to sleep and learning to calm down your nervous system or learning to unwind or chill out is really important, not only for your sleep, but for your health in general. Yeah. How do you do it personally? Meditate. Most mornings, it's become much more habitual over the last couple of years. It was always a struggle. Now, I'd probably say I meditate six days a week on average. I try to do it every day. So it's become more of a habit. And I find that's probably been the best thing that I've ever done for my health. I love to walk in nature on the beach. I listen to music a lot. I make a big point of chilling out. I'm a big fan of relaxing. Yeah, <laughs> me too. I'm very protective of my sleep. 
it's hard for many of us. We are not programmed to no. allow ourselves to relax and enjoy and just stare out the window. I find even in myself, when I have a moment to relax, I'm looking for my phone. It's a problem, yeah. And that's the way our culture set up. What's interesting about this pandemic, I think most people are sort of enjoying the quiet time and realizing how much they enjoy spending more time with their family, going for a walk in nature, not working so hard. It's been an interesting twist for some people have really realized that there is maybe a better way and I'm going to try to find more balance moving forward now, which I think is great. Yeah. And I think that for a lot of people, it's an interruption in their mindless routine that they've fallen into. And so I think there's going to be a lot of innovation and creativity that comes out of this time too. Are you concerned about a collective fear, stress, isolation in terms of mental health and physical health? Because we know the body and the mind are, are not disconnected in the midst of this pandemic. Of course, I think there's a pandemic of fear as well as a pandemic of COVID-19. And then this loneliness, which is, in a way, it's connected, but it's a separate issue. Our medical system is a fear-based system to start with. We scare the shit out of people. We're unaware of the words we use and how important relationships are and beliefs are. Another thing I learned in South Africa, how important beliefs are. And the Dalai Lama talks about how important the belief of the patient, the belief of the practitioner, and the karma, the relationship between the two. So I think beliefs where your head's at is important. And we do have a fear-based system. Dealing with fear and acknowledging that we're scared is important. And once again, mindfulness, meditation is important here. Speaking to friends, a therapist, important exercise, and journaling. There's so many ways we can deal with the fear. But first, you've got to acknowledge that it's an issue, and it is a major issue. The loneliness is a little bit more complicated, but is really important. As I put in the book, a whole section on connect, because we had been tending in that direction anyway. But now it's harder to connect in some ways, but you've got to make an effort, whether it's via Zoom or phones or, you know, there are more and more studies coming out how lonely people don't live as long, lonely people tend to be more unhealthy. So loneliness is a huge issue, a harder one to deal with as in this culture. Um, you know, when I grew up, you were sort of surrounded. The family was all around, the community was, it was a much more old school way of living where loneliness was generally not a major issue. It's a much more of an issue in the way we live today. There's going to be repercussions of the consequences of the fear and the loneliness. Yeah. I had asked you before we started about during the pandemic, having to adjust your practice and doing things remotely. And I would love to hear your thoughts on how not just the remote access to doctors, but how the pandemic might shift the medical establishment, how people access medicine, and how medicine's practiced in this country? I'm not exactly sure, but I do think more people and doctors as well have realized that a lot of medicine can be done with telemedicine. I mean, a lot of what I do is really teaching people and partnering them and trying to motivate them and inspire them to make changes. I mean, I've realized a lot of what I can do can be done remotely. I mean, I've been doing telemedicine and been loving it. 
And I think for a lot of people, not having to spend half an hour, an hour getting to the doctor, waiting in a, a waiting room, the whole fear factor of going to a doctor can be eliminated. So I think there is going to be a shift. I think even doctors are realizing that. I'm hoping there'll be much bigger shifts. There'll be a shift in the way we think about our health because what we've realized with COVID-19 that the comorbidities or the people who have not done particularly well have been the people with what I would call sugar dysregulation or metabolic ill health, people with diabetes, hypertension, obesity. Hopefully this will be a wake-up call for people to realize how important diet is and what they put into their bodies. So I'm hoping on a bigger shift than just the shift towards telemedicine, although I'm sure there will be a shift towards telemedicine. Yeah. How can we use clues from the appearance of our tongue, how our stool looks as ways of measuring and determining health? How can we optimize our digestion based on some of the ways that our bodies are speaking to us? Symptoms are pointers of your body to tell you something is off balance. So in Western medicine, you get taught if you have heartburn, here's Nexium to suppress a heartburn. You've got a headache, here's Tylenol to get rid of the headache. It's the metaphor I always use, if you're driving your car and the oil light goes on, you don't put a band-aid over the oil light, you see why the oil light goes on. In Chinese medicine, we were taught to, to look at the body differently, to see symptoms as a pointer to some imbalance. Working out the particular imbalance may be difficult, but I think learning about your body's clues are important and making adjustments. If you feel shitty after drinking alcohol or eating a certain food, you've got to listen to that. Whether you want to keep a diary or not, I think it's important to try work out patterns of what's going on and adjust accordingly. I mean, in Chinese medicine, the digestive system is the earth element, the center. When that goes off, everything goes off. So I work a lot with digestion. And if someone isn't pooping properly or they're getting bloated too easily, they've got too much gas, these are all symptoms that need to be addressed. There's a great mnemonic that we use that's actually in the book. It's the five R's, or they teach the four R's. Remove, replace, re-inoculate, repair, and rest. So let's just go through each one of those. First thing is remove. You've got to remove what could be triggering the problem. So you go on some type of elimination diet. So you remove the common foods that could trigger it. Gluten, dairy, corn, sugar are the common ones. Sometimes you've got to remove some imbalance in the gut microbiome, the, all the bugs in your gut. You may need, there may be yeast, there may be some bad bacteria. Everyone knows about SIBO now. So you need to remove that. The second R is replace. Sometimes you don't have enough digestive juices enzymes or hydrochloric acid. So simple things like apple cider vinegar or Swedish bitters can be helpful just to help digestion. The third R is re-inoculate. That's sometimes you need some good bacteria. So you can eat prebiotic foods or eat probiotic foods like fermented foods. Prebiotic foods, I often talk about the stalks and the stem. Don't cut off that end of the broccoli or the asparagus. Eat them because those are the fiber that your body doesn't digest and they feed the good bacteria in your gut. So that would be re-inoculate. Repair. Sometimes you need to repair the damaged gut lining. We won't get into that because that's a bit more complicated. Probably should work with a doctor with that, for that and functional medicine doctor. Although bone broth is something you can drink that could be helpful. 
And then the final R is rest. You need to rest the digestive system. I'm a big fan of intermittent fasting, of at least resting your digestive system for a good 12 hours overnight. It is all in the book. Thank you. Which of the things that you recommend do you see the most resistance to in the people that you work with? I think everyone's different, but if I had to generalize, I would say sleep is the issue that people don't take seriously enough. People are aware that what they eat is important. People are becoming more aware of sugar and processed foods. They may not be aware of vegetable oils and the harm that vegetable oils cause. Everyone knows about exercise. Everyone knows about stress and they need to relax. Sleep is probably the part or that one factor that most people don't take seriously enough, although that's changing and hopefully more books about it and more media coverage about it will change. You can get an A plus at eating well. You can get an A plus at exercising, but somehow people feel like it's a badge of honor to sleep less, not more. The sort of societal reward and praise goes in the opposite direction. Another question How can I make myself start to like meditation? I get that question all the time because meditation is difficult for all of us. It took me years and years. The easiest way to get into meditation is do something like yoga, which is a moving meditation or Tai Chi. So the quickest way to quiet the mind is to move the body. Finding something that you enjoy and focusing your attention could be cooking, it could be knitting. It could be washing the dishes, finding something where you can be completely focused, something that's creative. You're going to get many other effects of meditation by doing that. Going for a walk in nature can be a meditation. So find something that you enjoy and learn to just be very mindful and present at that particular time. Sitting on a cushion is not the only way to meditate. Learning just to be completely present wherever you are. You can learn meditation if you've got a little kid, just learn to be present with your kids. In a way, it's mind control. And that takes years and practice. Meditation is a practice. I'm 65 years old. I've only gotten into it more seriously in the last year or two. The point of if you don't enjoy it is if you're not going to enjoy something, just don't do it. You want to really have something that's sustainable. You really need to enjoy doing it. Find something you enjoy good advice. Uh, A couple more questions on sleep. Your recommendations on sleep. Does it have to be eight hours uninterrupted? Do naps count? I'd say between seven to nine hours. Most people need seven hours is fine. It doesn't have to be eight. It doesn't have to be uninterrupted as long as you can get up to pee, but as long as you don't spend the next hour trying to get back to sleep. So if you're waking up and then falling back asleep quite easily, that's not a problem. What's most important about sleep, it's really what's going on during your day that's going to affect your night. It's not just about darkening your room, which is important, having a cold room, which is important, and a quiet room, which is important. What you do during the day is really important. And if you can't switch off your mind um, and you're not able to relax, journaling or, or commit, let's say, 15 minutes, half an hour to thinking about all the shit that's going on in your life and write it down and get rid of it. And then if you can get as much natural light during the day, 
as possible. That can really help your sleep. So that's why I always recommend first thing in the morning to get some natural light. And if you can't go outside for a walk, just sit at the window. Most important is sleep is a rhythm. So it's important to go to sleep at the same time every night and try to wake up at the same time. What I call social jet lag, where you go to bed at two o'clock on weekends and try to catch up during the week, doesn't really work for your body's internal rhythms. And then probably the last thing I want to mention, because people have a hard time with letting go of this, alcohol. Alcohol is a problem because a lot of people drink because it relaxes them at night to fall asleep and it may help you fall asleep. But the way alcohol works in your body is you're going to wake up four or five hours later and you're going to be wide awake. I'm all for naps. But the important thing with naps are if you nap too late and it can affect you falling asleep and not too long. So let's say a 20-minute nap, maybe 25-minute nap early in the afternoon, sort of like a siesta is a good idea. There's someone, this is not my term, but I do like it, or been suggesting it, is taking a nappuccino. Have a cup of coffee, like at 1.30 or 2, whatever, and then take a nap. And when you wake up, you're like wide awake. It's called the nappuccino. I don't know where it came from, but it's not my term, but I love the idea of that. Thoughts on melatonin or other supplements? Look, I'm a major fan of supplements. I've been using them for years and years. Targeted supplementation. Melatonin can help your body get back into rhythm because melatonin is your primary sleep hormone. And if your melatonin is out of whack, taking melatonin at night may very well help a rhythm problem with sleep. So I'm all for melatonin. Supplements for sleep can be very helpful. If you're anxious, supplements like L-theanine and GABA, valerian root, magnesium can help. Anything just to calm down the nervous system can be helpful. In my practice, we do a lot of blood tests, and from someone's history and blood tests, we can determine what's more important. So we measure vitamin D and B12 and red blood cell magnesium, and you measure certain hormones and other markers which will determine what someone takes. Working with a practitioner who knows or reading appropriate stuff can be helpful. Supplements are tricky because the supplement industry is like little pharma. They want you to buy supplements. And I've been there. I had my own supplement companies. Targeted supplementation is incredibly helpful. What I take now is different to what I took maybe 10 years ago. Now I'm taking some immune stuff, but I'm taking stuff that's more targeted to aging. So it all depends where you are in your life cycle. It all depends what your symptoms are. If you've got gut stuff, you need to take targeted gut supplements. You need to get from a reliable company because the quality of supplement, there's no regulation. So what's in that supplement, you don't really know. Do you have any that you either work with somebody with or have created? Sure. Chief medical officer at the well. And I helped create a couple of targeted packs from my experience and other practitioners' experience. So we have top-of-the-line products from the well. So we have a gut complex. We have a stress complex. We have an immune complex. So people can go to the well's website and we have very targeted supplements. Your thoughts on alcohol generally beyond using it to relax and go to sleep? If you're sitting around a table with friends and family and you're having some wine, I think the benefits you get are from that connection and from the community, not from the alcohol per se. I completely disagree with this understanding that having a glass of wine a day is good for you. 
Alcohol is a toxin, period. If you're drinking alcohol, as I said, in the context of community, I'm all for that. Now, I'm not against toxins or drugs per se, but just use them intelligently. Okay. Do you recommend taking a probiotic daily? I have for the last 20 years recommended taking a probiotic daily. Everyone's microbiomes are so different. So I I use probiotics all the time. But I think what's probably better than taking a probiotic is eating more prebiotics, eating the foods that feed the good bacteria, and maybe eating probiotic foods like fermented foods. Probiotics can you can do well with one and it can be harmful for the next person. So that's very tricky. That's safer to eat more prebiotics. A question about food sensitivities. The question is why? Is it genetic? Can I heal it? And how? There may be a genetic component, but a lot of food sensitivities have to do with the imbalance in the gut flora. We talked about the microbiome. And what I see with food sensitivities a lot is once you correct that imbalance, Sometimes there's an overgrowth of bacteria or yeast. Once you correct that, the food sensitivity gets better. So food sensitivities are frequently a consequence of an imbalance in the gut microbiome. A food like gluten is a little bit different because the gluten in America is basically an altered food and is also sprayed with glyphosate. Glyphosate is active ingredient in Roundup. It's also a registered antibiotic, so it gets back to our food systems. It's complicated food sensitivities, but as a general rule, I would say correct your microbiome and your food sensitivities often get better and just avoid those altered foods as much as possible. Yeah. There's a question about advice for recurring candida and SIBO leading a very healthy lifestyle. And I imagine your suggestion would be the same. That's probably one of the most common problems I see. And that has to do with years and years of eating American food that has been sprayed with glyphosate, taking a lot of antibiotics as a kid. My generation of doctors and parents gave our kids way too many antibiotics. The antibiotics in the meats we eat. And over time, this creates this imbalance in the microbiome and you get yeast, you can get SIBO. So you need to work with a practitioner that can actually help treat that because you need to kill the bugs first. And sometimes you even need medication so you would suggest somebody seeing a practitioner who can help definitely, you? Definitely. Someone who deals with it all the time because it's extremely common and tricky. Yeah. What about hormonal birth control? Does that play into it at all? It can, but birth control can actually make yeast worse, yes. So sometimes you've got to get people off the pill as well. You've got to take the context into account. Yeah. So let's talk about systems. You had mentioned at the beginning that you grew up in apartheid, and I think we're realizing more and more that our perception of not having any of the sort of scourges of apartheid, we're not immune from that, that is happening in this country. I want to talk specifically about medicine. It's been well studied that if you are a black woman in America, your chances of dying in childbirth are two to three times higher than if you're a white woman. And I think there are many, many other inequities in the medical system. And I'd love your thoughts on specifically the medical system and how it works. Very briefly, to growing up in South Africa during apartheid, you knew that the political system and the justice system and the economic system, I grew up knowing all the systems were rotten. And as I started getting more into medicine, 
to me, the medical system was just another rotten system. They're all these patriarchal systems. You go to the doctor, he knows what's good for you. He knows more about your body than you do. You listen to him. It's not a partnership. And the medical system you asked about is really a fear-based system. So most people are scared to go to the doctor because the doctor unfortunately has not been trained to see the importance of how they present information. You've got cancer. If you don't do this treatment, you're going to die. You've got Crohn's disease. If you don't do this particular treatment, you're going to have to have your colon taken out. So it is a fear-based system without even realizing it. And there's no reason why it should be. I am hopeful after this crisis, the economic system, the justice system, political system, the food system, all of this hopefully will change with this next generation. The people on the streets, mostly young people, are realizing that the system's not working for the majority of people. So I think the medical system, the medica-industrial complex per se, is just another system that needs to, you know, whether it's police brutality and fear of the police in South Africa, there was this fear of the police. And I thought coming to America, the police are there to help you. Which, so I think all these systems are people are realizing here, and this is the first time I've seen it, and I've been here for 36 years. And it was always strange to me as an immigrant, as an outsider, to come here and see that the system was similar to South Africa. It just wasn't entrenched in the law. It wasn't legal. There were so many similarities, and most people didn't actually see it. I think now people are realizing it. And hopefully we come out of this with people fighting for a more equitable system in, in everything. I think the medical system is just one more system that needs to change. On that note, I am hopeful that there's real change happening and real shifts happening yeah. on multiple levels. I'm more optimistic now than I've ever been, to be quite honest. Mm. When I see these young, smart, committed women, it's very impressive. So I think I am extremely optimistic about the next generation, my daughter's generation. And it's exciting on some level to see that these shifts are actually, I think, going to slowly start happen. Thank you so much for being with us. So, stay safe. Stay sane. <laughs> Great bye. to see you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we welcome you to stay close and discover more of our offerings. Check us out on Instagram at Nushu or visit Nushu.com for more.